This is The Guardian. Today, as the world looks for ways to become greener, mining companies are arguing that the answer is at the bottom of the ocean. The deep ocean is the least known environment on Earth, and by some accounts, even less known than space. If you were to dive down, most likely in a submarine that's been reinforced because it's very high pressure down there, bright at the top and steadily get darker and darker. In the mid-level is where you get most of the species that we know of, the fish that we eat and so forth. And then when you get really low down, depending on the area, you might start to see this whole different world of life. There's some really weird and wonderful, beautiful creatures down there, including pale ghost octopuses, tennis ball-sized xenophyophores. You would see lights flash past you of humpback black devils, which have their own built-in lanterns. And people who've gone down that far often come back saying that they expected utter darkness and found it was incredible that there were undersea displays of living fireworks down there because biologists think there might actually be more bioluminescent creatures down in the deep sea than there are any kind of other species on land. So it's phenomenal the amount of life that's down there in colour and light. The Guardian's John Watts has been reporting on the fascinating living creatures of the deep ocean and its surprising natural features too, like the growths that form deep on the seabed called polymetallic nodules. They look kind of like the trunks of elephants coming out of the ground. They're formed over thousands, maybe even millions of years and they are home to different types of life, including octopus, corals and jellyfish. These nodules are also home to vast resources of copper, nickel, cobalt and rare earth elements like yttrium, materials that mining companies say are essential to start using if we want to stop relying on fossil fuels and move towards a more battery-powered, greener future. But extracting the metals from the nodules will mean dramatically disrupting the habitats of some of the most intelligent and fantastical creatures in the ocean in ways we don't yet fully understand. Deep sea mining hasn't started yet, but one small island in the Pacific, working together with a mining company, is eager to get going with it. My government continues to look for other revenue sources for Nauru, 
not just now, but for the future. The rules haven't been written, and conservationists are concerned. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, mining's next frontier, the deep ocean. John Watts, you're The Guardian's global environment editor, and you've been looking into deep sea mining for some time now. This story that we're going to be focusing on starts in Nauru, which is a tiny island in the Pacific. Can you tell me about it? Well, Nauru's had a very unfortunate history in the last hundred years, at least. It's really been the victim of colonialism and over-exploitation of resources. Britain and Germany often vied for control of this small island in the South Pacific. And mostly the reason they were interested in it was because it had large quantities of phosphate. Phosphate is the only economic resource of the island, and from it stem the improved living standards. Which was used in fertilizer to make other parts of the world, the richer world, look greener and more lush. In addition to the other benefits it brings them, Nauruans receive royalties on phosphate extracted from their lands. But it's a finite resource. And so after boom followed bust, phosphate started to run down. There wasn't much to sell. And what Nauru was left with was a really scarred landscape that's been compared to like something you might find on Mars. It's so devoid of life. So. It's a really quite a sad story of a stunningly beautiful place that was just degraded to the point almost of no return. So Nauru's had this really tumultuous history and right now it sounds like the country's looking for an economic lifeline. In June last year, the government there caused quite a stir by sending a particular letter. What did it say? It was a letter sent from Nauru, the government, to the International Seabed Authority in Kingston, Jamaica. Few people have heard of the International Seabed Authority, but it's mm. an organization under the United Nations that is supposed to run and protect and manage the resources on the world seabed and then to make sure they're shared out for the good of humanity. That's the theory. The letter from Nauru said, we will trigger what's called a two-year rule that you must set in place a rule book to begin deep sea mining within this time period of 24 months. And if that's not done, then deep sea mining is allowed to go ahead regardless. So hurry up, get the rule book done, and let's begin. And this was hugely controversial 
because it could affect one of the world's biggest and most pristine ecosystems. And Nauru are working with a huge Canadian mining company known as TMC, or the Metals Company, which has done a deal with the government of the island and plans to pay them to exploit some of the seabed resources that are in their jurisdiction. So the government's working hand-in-hand with this metals company. And in June last year, they said to the International Seabed Authority, look, we're going to start deep sea mining. And by your own rules, you now have two years to figure out how that should best be done so that other countries, other mining companies can follow our lead. What Nauru did and the company did was essentially fire the starting gun on a global race to exploit the world's last big frontier for resources. about the types of minerals that are at the bottom of the sea? Well, there's all sorts, but what humanity is mostly interested in at this point in our history is copper, nickel, cobalt, and rare earth elements such as yttrium, mainly because these are essential for modern electronic devices and batteries, so that our wind turbines and our electric cars and our solar panels can be used with maximum efficiency. In addition, there's gold, silver and platinum, the usual high value ores. And there's staggering quantities of these minerals under the seabed. And if a company can pull them out, it is likely to make a great deal of money. Where are we finding these minerals at the moment if we're not deep sea mining? At the moment, these minerals are found in many parts of the world. Chile, for example, parts of Russia. There's a huge concentration in China and Part of the geostrategic debate over seabed mining is that it might mean less dependency on the Chinese production. But on the seabed, these minerals tend to be found near the polymetallic nodules or near hydrothermal vents. So it's sort of very particular parts of the seabed. How do mining companies actually plan to extract these materials then? They essentially send down some really advanced, enormous machines to lop off the part of the nodule that they need. I guess it's like lopping off the top of a boiled egg or, depending on what type of mineral or in which location, to claw up some of the seabed where these minerals are found. And you need to have very strong machines to be able to operate under the enormous pressure of the sea down there. That's got to be an incredibly difficult thing to do. Even if these minerals are in such high demand, why do the mining companies say it's worth developing this whole new method of extracting them? So TMC has said that it's essential for the energy transition. The world is facing a climate crisis. They say it needs to get rid of all the fossil fuels and instead have wind turbines, solar panels, and especially batteries. And to do that, it's necessary to have a staggering amount of the minerals I mentioned earlier. 
And I've always been an active investor. Gerard Barron, who's the company's chief executive and chairman. And I was fascinated to know that the oceans were filled with metals. And so he's often said in public to convert the world's one billion plus combustion engine cars, in other words, the whole of the world's current vehicle fleet, to convert that to electric, he said, would require more metal than is currently being produced on the land. And so at a time when we're going through this growth in demand for metals, to have a supply of them that can be produced at a much lower impact environmentally and socially compared to land-based is a wonderful thing for society. He said that TMC is so committed to the environment that they are even willing to halt production once the world has enough minerals for two billion batteries. Because at that point, he says, there'll be enough to constantly recycle so that no more minerals will need to be mined. So he's positioning them as being like a responsible company, saying they'll halt mining. Maybe I'm too sceptical, but I wonder if a mining company would stop if it was a very profitable thing to do. You're not the only one who's sceptical about that. Some of the senior marine biologists I've spoken to said, you know, once you start doing this, it's very hard to stop. It's not something you can put back in a box and shareholders are not going to want to suddenly close the tap of big dividends. Right, we've heard the arguments that the mining company is making that we're going to need to harness the metals on the bottom of the ocean if we want to transition to a low carbon and battery driven world. But of course, once we go down this path of mining the deep sea, it may be hard to turn back. What are the risks involved in this new frontier of mining? There are several. The first and the most obvious one is that it will damage habitats and have a bad impact on wildlife. Creatures that we know, such as the Dumbo octopus, have a home sometimes in these polymetallic nodules. And so we are wrecking the homes of many species if we go ahead. Mining could wipe out organisms before we've had the chance to discover them like microbes that have possible uses in medicine. Many microbes actually live on polymetallic nodules. Secondly, that it will kick up sediment plumes, contaminating, obscuring other parts of the sea where fish are more abundant. Thirdly, that it will cause a great deal of noise. And there are a growing number of studies that suggest deep sea noise can be very disruptive to breeding habits, navigation, and in some cases even kill certain species. But I think that probably the clearest argument is that it is reckless to go chewing up an environment that we don't know much about. We don't know the damage that we are doing mm. because we are still discovering new things about it almost every time researchers go down there. What we are asking is that we should not go in and trash an area of the globe about which we know hardly anything until we've done the proper research. In short, we want a moratorium against action of industrialising and mining 
the deep sea. I spoke to many scientists, experts, conservation groups while I was researching this article. Many of them, such as Louisa Casson of Greenpeace, say that we simply can't go ahead because right now the risks far outweigh the rewards. Deep sea mining could cause irreversible harm to our oceans, the potential extinction of species, and it could make climate change worse. We need to protect our global oceans, and that's why we're calling for a global ocean treaty. I mean, it's not just ecosystems that might face potentially disastrous consequences from this. People are going to be affected as well, aren't they? Ultimately, we're all kind of bound together on this planet. And as we are finding out with increasing frequency, what happens in one area often comes back to affect the rest of the planet. And this is very likely to be the case here. The deep sea may seem very, very, very far away, but what happens in the deep sea affects the upper parts of the ocean. And the upper parts of the ocean is where many of the fish that we depend on for food are found. And we already know that the oceans are in a terrible state as a result of overfishing, mineral exploitation nearer the coasts, pollution, and deep sea mining would just add to another level of the ocean. And a level of the ocean that has been used for temperature control, for species habitats, and again, in ways that probably we will discover more about as we explore those areas more in the future. The other great risk is that a lot of these deep sea mining operations are likely to take place in waters that are linked to or under the direct jurisdiction of very small and weak states like Nauru or many other small island nations. And big corporations sign deals with the governments of these countries. They're really not in any position of equality when they make these deals. The big powerful lawyers all tend to be with the global corporation. And so the danger is that if things do go wrong, if there are sediment plumes, if there is pollution, if there is disruption and deaths of marine life and fisheries affected, then the company can just walk away and declare itself bankrupt and leave this small island state, many of which are poor already, with all of the consequences. They'll be expected to clean up. They might be the ones that are legally held responsible. So this is another of the risks and a risk to the people of those countries who really don't get to vote on whether they want to go ahead with this. Nobody has ever had a national election and voted for deep sea mining, whether that should go ahead or not. I feel that Pacific Island people deserves to be heard, that we should not support deep sea mining. We need the ocean for our food, for our climate, for our marine biodiversity. It all needs to be much more transparent and open and there needs to be much more of a debate in the world about whether we want to go ahead with this rather than having it decided for us. The mining companies are touting this as the future, but it sounds like deep sea mining is going to involve a lot of the same problems as modern mining on land. It's a really old question for humanity in that civilization has always depended on exploitation of resources. The Iron Age couldn't have come into being without that. Modern technology certainly couldn't have come into being without that. And there's always been a debate about the balance between rushing in, getting the resources as cheaply as possible, and dealing with the consequences. And for 
pretty much all of human history, the general theory has been, well, it's worth the cost, let's rush in, more people will benefit than we'll lose, and it will push forward the great project of human civilization. In recent decades, however, humanity has started to realize that resource exploitation that we always used to do in faraway places, and often in countries that had a colonial history or that were exploited through power relations, that this is no longer just affecting them. It's coming back to haunt us. Coming up, we delve deeper to find out about the international body that has ultimate responsibility for the ocean bed. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. John, what we're talking about are literally uncharted waters. You've told me that at the moment, there aren't any rules about how deep sea mining should be done safely or ethically or sustainably. So now it's on the International Seabed Authority, the body you mentioned at the very start who received that letter from Nauru, to write those rules and they need to do it quickly. They've got a draft together now and they'll have less than a year and a half to finalise it. Greetings from the International Seabed Authority in Jamaica. I'm very pleased to say that the first set of standards and guidelines to support the new mining code are now available online for public consultation. Tell me about who makes up the ISA. What kind of body is it and who are its members? The ISA is under the umbrella of the United Nations. Any nation can sign up and if they sign up, then their representatives can attend meetings at the headquarters, which are in Kingston, Jamaica. It has two main mandates. The first one is that it is obliged to manage seabed resources for the good of humanity. The second is that it is supposed to protect the environment of the seabed. So there's a contradiction there straight away. And the organisation itself has come under a lot of criticism that it spends far too much time exploiting resources and not nearly enough time protecting the environment and worrying about the consequences. The aim is to design a set of regulations for deep sea mining that is commercially viable, environmentally responsible and maximises the economic benefits to mankind. It's set up in such a way that a lot of the really important decisions are made by a smaller committee the Legal and Technical Commission. And this expert committee is really weighted much more towards experts who have been involved in various types of mining around the world, whether that's oil exploitation or mineral exploitation. But they basically come from a culture and a mindset of it's good and right that we should dig for minerals 
and we deal with the environmental consequences later. And so when this special committee receives applications like that from the government of Nauru, what process do they put them through? And what's the committee's record like on approving applications? The Legal and Technical Commission is just 30 members. Once they make a decision, they recommend it, and that goes through to the body of the ISA as a whole. So basically a vote that everybody can vote on. But at the moment, this Legal and Technical Commission has a 100% record of approving applications it receives. And there's even kind of an incentive for it in that the ISA charges $500,000 for each processing fee. So in a sense, they've got a business incentive to have more applications. Gosh, that's quite striking, isn't it? What do you think a responsible framework would be for them to set out? What would that look like? What a responsible framework would look like is almost impossible to answer because we don't know how the deep sea works exactly. And so the responsible thing to do at the moment until we know more would be to leave open the possibility of limited mining in the future and to wait and build a framework in much more detail of what those consequences might be. decision that the ISA has got to make will have ramifications for the whole world. What can governments do, if anything, to influence how deep sea mining should be regulated? Well, every government that is involved with the ISA can tell their delegates that this is not the time to go forward, that it's too much of a rush, if that's what they believe. And for some, particularly Germany, for example, there's quite a strong green movement, so they don't want a political backlash domestically. Others, for example, Chile or many African nations have terrestrial mining operations and they don't want rival deep sea operations to kind of undercut them. But on the whole, most governments don't have much incentive to slow things down. What's the UK government's position? The UK government's position has been, let's say, compromised. In one sense, there's been concerns expressed in Parliament by parliamentary committees, but that's the parliamentary committees. At the government level, there have been reports showing that senior government officials have been closely connected to Lockheed Martin, the US weapons company, which also wants to have deep sea mining because many of the same minerals that are used for renewables are used for weapons. Lockheed Martin has a big operation in the UK. It's known as UK Seabed Resources. And they have been very close to the government and advise them on what to do at the ISA. Sounds like there are a lot of parties with uh, vested interests here. Well, in fact, many of the companies that you would think would want more of these minerals have lined up actually with the conservationists. So you've had the likes of BMW, Volvo, Google and Samsung join with the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, in calling for a moratorium. They're saying 
the, the inventories of materials and the resources underground are going to be sufficient for the foreseeable future. And then after that, it should be possible to recycle much more effectively. So they're not the ones generating this sense of urgency. So the most significant challenge to deep sea mining is coming at the moment from some of the big manufacturers who could actually benefit from it. John, do you think there's a wider lesson here for us as individuals? You know, mining companies are only going to push ahead with this as long as we demand the products that are made using these metals. Is there something that we should all be thinking about in terms of what we use and what we think we need to live our lives? I think that is a consideration in all environmental debates, but it is not the most important consideration. Yes, as individuals, we should be trying to minimise the material goods that we use, but much, much more important than this is political action and going way beyond voting with your wallet and actually voting at a ballot box, because this really isn't about just you or me. It's about big political systems. It's about huge corporations. uh, And it's about really structural change at a global level. John, this has been really illuminating. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very glad you're interested in this subject. That was John Watts. You can read his article called Race to the Bottom, The Disastrous blindfolded rush to mine the deep sea at theguardian.com and I'd recommend it. You'll see in there pictures of the Dumbo octopus which is so cute as well as photos and diagrams that'll help you understand how deep sea mining is done. We went to the ISA with the points raised in this episode but didn't receive a response. We also approached the weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin for comment about their relationship with the UK government in its dealing with the International Seabed Authority. And their CEO told us that they're focused on ensuring an adequate and diverse supply of critical minerals, which could play a critical role in the transition to a circular net zero economy. And that as one of the many relevant stakeholders, They provide regular input through the UK government to ensure that the ISA continues to meet its regulatory commitments. And while you're here, I've something to ask of you. What other podcasts are you listening to at the moment? What do you like about the podcasts that The Guardian is making at the moment? And what would you like to hear more or less of? Go to www.guardiansurveys.com forward slash podcast And please give us your thoughts there. We'll post the link in the show notes to this episode too. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Maithili Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. Oh, 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 oh,
This is The Guardian.